This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. I'm with Matthew Liebman, the staff attorney for the Animal Legal Defense Fund. He's speaking to us by phone about his organization's mission and some of the cases this group of animal rights lawyers are working on. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. To start off, I read that uh, you co-founded a chapter of the Student Animal League Defense Fund at Stanford. How did that come about? Well, I went to law school knowing that I wanted to do animal protection law. Um, when I got to Stanford, there wasn't a group there, a student group that was dedicated to, to learning about animal law. Um, and so decided to, to help found it myself. So a few friends and I who, who had similar interests got together um, and worked with the, the national organization, Animal Legal Defense Fund, where I work now. Uh, and they helped us set up a student chapter to, to raise the profile of animal law at the law school. Um, and so we had a lot of support from the organization, but, but did a lot of um, hands-on work at the, at the law school to make sure that our fellow students and, and faculty were aware of animal law and to try to bring animal law into the curriculum. What are the goals of the Animal Legal Defense Fund? Well, the mission of the organization is to protect the lives and advance the interests of animals through the legal system. And we do that through three primary programs. Uh, the first is the program that I work in, the civil litigation program, where we sue people who abuse animals, whether that's individuals or large corporate factory farms. Um, we also have a criminal justice program, which works with prosecutors and district attorneys and law enforcement officers to make sure that the criminal anti-cruelty laws that are designed to protect animals are enforced and that people who violate those laws are prosecuted. And then we also have the Animal Law Program, which works with legal professionals and law students to promote animal law as a legitimate field of inquiry and, and as part of the law school curriculum. And Matthew, what's the difference between animal rights and animal welfare? Well, there's that's a, a big question and one that causes a lot of controversy within the animal protection movement. I think that the simplest way to describe the difference is that people who support animal rights uh, believe that animals have interests that must be protected regardless of how those uh, interests affect the interests of human beings. Um, if animals have rights, and those rights can't be superseded for the sake of convenience. People who support animal welfare might tend to continue to support uses of animals and exploitation of animals so long as the suffering that animals endure uh, is minimized. So whereas someone who believes in animal rights um, wouldn't support killing animals for food or, or, or doing experiments on them, someone who supports animal welfare wouldn't have a problem with, with those acts so long as they were done in a way that minimized uh, the pain and discomfort that an animal had to endure. Oh, and what direction does your organization lean towards the rights or the welfare? Well, we are an animal rights organization, um, but we also do animal welfare work as a stepping stone towards animal rights. So, um, you know, we have a long-term goal of making uh, animals legal subjects with legal rights that are enforceable in courts of law and um, changing the status of animals from being things or property to being legal persons. Um, but we also recognize that that long-term goal isn't going to happen um, without a lot of 
intermediate steps. Um, so in the short term, we don't want to sacrifice the lives of animals who are suffering on factory farms or in laboratories for the sake of purity. So we will do animal welfare reforms um, to improve the short-term lives and experiences of animals um, while at the same time keeping our eye on the long-term goal of changing the system that, that makes that kind of mass exploitation so easy, which is the, the institution of animals as property. So to stress a little bit more on your long-term goal, what is what do you ultimately see happening with animals if they're not considered owned? Are they adopted? What? How would that work? It, it would depend on the particular animal. Um, with dogs and cats and the animals who we share our lives with, um, there are other models of, of relating that aren't based on property and ownership. Certainly guardianship or companionship are um, more egalitarian ways of, of looking at our relationship with with animals. Um, and then, you know, what it means for large industries that exploit animals on a on a massive scale, I think it would um, change those rather rather significantly. It's difficult to, to really think about um, exactly what the legal system would look like because animals as property are so um, it's a concept that's so ingrained in the way that, that we think about our relationships with animals, but we want to sort of start um, raising that conversation and getting people thinking about what it would mean to relate to animals as um, persons who have rights that could be enforced um, rather than mere things who we can do with as we please. Is that part of the problem that this idea of ownership of an animal also follows the logic that I can therefore do what I want with my property as opposed to taking care of something that I'm guardian over? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think when someone, we have a, a view of property, at least in America, that um, private property is inviolable and, and you can do with it whatever you want to. And so as long as animals stay within that category, people will be resistant to reforms that, that change what people can do with their property. And so as long as animals stay within that system, it's going to be difficult to, to really challenge animal exploitation at a fundamental level. But that's not to say that we can't make significant improvements in how animals are treated in the, the property paradigm. That's part of what ALDS does in some of our lawsuits. We, we certainly won't, won't go into a court and say animals should be persons and, and we don't recognize that they're property. Um, you know, the nitty-gritty of litigation means we have to work within that system, but that doesn't mean that there aren't improvements that, that can be made. What would you call it now, having a pet? You know, the language that we use is guardianship of a companion animal. And so we don't have a problem. I mean, everyone who works here has animals at home. Uh, I have five rescued cats. Um, <laughs> most of my co coworkers have rescued dogs and cats. So um, we're certainly not opposed to, to companion animals. And I don't think that would change under a paradigm where, where animals are not property. Um, just as you know, children are not property, that doesn't mean we can't have kids <laughs> a family life with them. Right, and take care of them. It's just how you think about them. Right. Okay. Um, Matthew, what is ADLF's position on eating meat? Well, the, the first rule of legal ethics is don't eat your client. So uh, we personally don't um, eat animals or animal products. The Animal Legal Defense Fund um, encourages people to adopt a, a plant-based diet. Um, you know, there are 10 million, excuse me, 10 billion farmed animals who are killed in this country every year. 
um, for food, and we encourage people to um, not be part of that system. There's a massive industrial factory farming problem that raises significant ethical issues for um, our treatment of animals, but also um, issues regarding human health and environmental devastation. And so we, we uh, definitely encourage people to adopt a plant-based vegan diet. What about free-ranged animals? Well, free-range is unfortunately not all it's cracked up to be. Um, it's not a very well-regulated term and, in fact, um, typically doesn't address a lot of the problems that we see in industrial farming. So a lot of what's labeled free-range turns out to be from systems that look very close to, if not identical, to uh, industrial factory farming. Um, when you think about free-range, you tend to think about animals roaming um, outdoors and green pastures, and in fact, a lot of free-range animals are raised in large industrial warehouses with a little door that opens out into a, a concrete porch. Um, and as long as they have some access to the outdoors, they can label the product free-range. So that raises pretty significant problems for, for consumers being aware of, of what they're actually buying. So free-range, unfortunately, is, is not um, what it purports to be in a lot of cases, and it still doesn't address the fundamental issue, which is whether or not we have a, a right to kill animals for culinary preferences. So there are certainly bigger philosophical issues about whether it's okay to, to kill an animal for food, but even if you do accept that, you know, as long as the animal had a decent life, that's morally acceptable, um, you still have the problem of the, the logistics of um, free-range and so-called humane meat. Uh, and I think most people, if they knew what those systems actually look like, would be pretty surprised. Um, and of course, the slaughter process tends to be the same regardless of how the animal was, was raised to begin with. So those animals are still being slaughtered in slaughterhouses that, that most people would not want to look at. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV. Today I'm talking with Matthew Liebman, the staff attorney for the Animal League Defense Fund. Matthew, what is your group's position on zoos? or other forms of animal exhibition? Well, when it, when it comes to exhibitions of animals, I think at a bare minimum, uh, if you're going to confine an animal and take him or her out of the wild, you should be able to approximate uh, their natural conditions and provide for their basic physical and biological and psychological needs. And sadly, a lot of animals are not um, well-suited to captivity. And, of course, there's a pretty broad spectrum of types of exhibition, anything from circuses, which are the most ranked form of exploitation of wild animals, up to accredited zoos, where there's much more of a naturalistic enclosure. So there's certainly a spectrum of animal exhibitions, but at a bare minimum, those facilities should be able to provide uh, the basic needs that animals have, um, and sadly, most of them don't in our experience. And the lawsuits that we've brought um, to challenge animal exhibits have, have really demonstrated that a lot of places aren't, aren't doing it right. Can you give me an example of something that you've seen or something that your organization has seen when it comes to maybe a uh, zoo exhibit that just wasn't up to par? Sure, yeah. Um, one of our biggest cases right now is a lawsuit concerning a tiger named Tony who is kept in a cage in a parking lot at a truck stop in Louisiana, um, sort of roadside zoo. Um, and we've filed a lawsuit against the state agency that issued a permit to the truck stop 
uh, to exhibit Tony um, on the grounds that, that the exhibitor didn't meet the requirements to obtain a permit. And, you know, certainly a truck stop is no place for a tiger to, to live. There's virtually nothing that approximates his natural environment and, you know, walking on concrete and smelling diesel fumes and hearing the no noise of the highway with artificial fluorescent lights 24 hours a day. Um, so certainly in a case like that, the exhibition of uh, a tiger at a roadside zoo is completely inappropriate. So we're hoping to, to get Tony free and sent to a, a reputable sanctuary that, that can provide some approximation of what a tiger has evolved naturally to, to exist in that, that kind of environment. How about zoos that have more of a, as you said, an environmental slant to the way they treat their animals? Are they more acceptable or are they still kind of subpar? Well, it depends. Um, they can be subpar. We have a, another lawsuit right now against the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle um, based on their confinement of elephants. Um, and elephants are really are, are one of those animals that are incredibly difficult to keep in captivity. Why? Because in the in the wild, elephants have a really broad range. They walk um, many miles a day, um, and they've evolved to do that to find food. Uh, they also have incredibly intricate social matriarchal networks where they can stay in the same family for virtually their entire lives. Uh, so elephants are naturally predisposed to be incredibly social and to move around a lot. And those are both things that are really difficult to replicate in an urban zoo. And so in Seattle, they have simply not enough space to exercise, to walk around, and that has caused them pretty serious uh, knee and joint problems and foot problems, they're arthritic. And so that kind of environment is not uh, good for, for elephants in particular. And there are animals like that who, are, who, who raise serious problems. And so, um, you know, where we find zoos that aren't providing appropriate animal welfare, um, as is the case with the, with the Woodland Park Zoo, then we'll, we'll bring lawsuits in those cases to make sure that the animals' needs are attended to. Matthew, do you know of any zoo in any area that could be a model for acceptable exhibition? There are some that are better than others. The Oakland Zoo here near us uh, has a, a great team of uh, veterinarians and behaviorists who, who do well with elephants. But really the, the model for elephants in particular are the sanctuaries. There's one in California and another one in Tennessee that provide you know acres and acres of of land to range on with natural substrate beneath their feet, and, and that those, those are really the, the measure of excellence in the, in the context of elephants. Uh, I see that some of the current cases the ALDF is working on uh, are pretty high profile. For example, um, you guys have been working on getting an animal bill of rights through Congress. Is that correct? Yeah, the animal bill of rights is um, more a statement of principles than an actual piece of legislation. Um, so far, we've had more than a quarter million people uh, sign it, and it basically urges Congress to um, pass legislation to support basic rights for animals. In a nutshell, it's the right of animals to be free from exploitation, cruelty, neglect, and abuse. Uh, and then there are particular rights for laboratory animals, farmed animals, companion animals, and wildlife. Um, but then so there are branches. Animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're hoping that the 
broad support that we've gotten for the Animal Bill of Rights sends a message to Congress that this is an issue of, of public concern that demands action. And I would think that there would already be something on the books that says you can't abuse an animal, no? To some extent. Um, at the federal level, it's pretty limited. Every state does have an anti-cruelty law that criminalizes cruelty to animals. Unfortunately, those tend to be um, under-enforced and also to be written in ways that leave out a lot of animal exploitation. So, um, for example, a lot of states have what are called common farming exemptions, where if a practice is common enough in the agriculture industry, uh, it, it's simply not cruel by definition. And so you find practices in uh, the raising of animals for uh, meat and dairy and eggs that cause incredible suffering but are legal simply because they're widespread. So, for example, uh, hens who are raised to lay eggs often have their beaks seared off when they're chicks in order to prevent them from pecking each other when they're crammed into cages. Uh, and this is typically done without anesthetic, uh, often mill calves are castrated without anesthetic, um, tails are cut off to avoid infections, um, and these are all practices that cause immense animal suffering, but they're simply left out of the cruelty laws because they're common and because the industry has that sort of power. So while there are existing laws that do protect animals, they have loopholes, and, and our goal is to make sure that the legislation that, that does exist is effective in actually protecting animals and preventing suffering. It sounds like there are degrees to how we view animals that I actually never thought about before, that maybe a dog or cat has more of a value for whatever reason than a, a hen or a, a, a cow. Would you say that's true, and why? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think the reason has to do with our familiarity with these animals or direct contact with these animals. And so the, the laws that protect dogs and cats don't protect pigs and chickens and cows, even though from a biological standpoint, all of those animals are capable of suffering in the same ways. And I think that has to do with the fact that we don't spend as much of our lives um, with pigs and chickens and cows as we do with dogs and cats, and so there's not as much of a demand um, for laws that protect those animals. And also it has to do with money uh, and the fact that there's profit to be made by treating pigs and cows and chickens uh, in ways that, that, that make them suffer that isn't necessarily the case with dogs and cats, although with people who are trying to make money off of dogs and cats with puppy mills where, where dogs are bred to be sold to pet stores, you do see that sort of intense suffering and, and concentration and industrialization that you see on factory farms as well. Mm. Now, Matthew, let's talk about the use of, of DNA in animal cruelty cases. So, for example, are you familiar with the 2008-2009 uh, here in New York City? There were two cats that to some extent found somewhat minuscule amounts of justice when their abusers were convicted based on DNA samples. Now it's a law that you can use DNA samples from animals to see whether or not they were abused and link that to the person who was abusing them. So how does your organization view that? It's, it's a interesting development and there's certainly um, a growing field of what's called forensic veterinary science um, which is bringing some of the, the technology that's used in human criminal cases to bear in animal cases, uh, and that's something that's supported by our criminal justice program. We often provide funding for these more expensive forensic tests to help establish 
different elements of the crime. Um, and that's important in animal cases because you don't have a victim who can testify. You have an animal who, um, in some cases, is killed, and even if they're still alive, obviously can't give testimony in the case, and often there are no eyewitnesses, so all you're left with is physical evidence. And um, sometimes it takes hard science to figure out exactly what happened, and you need an expert to testify you know, this kind of injury would be caused by this kind of action, and that's often necessary to prove that the person who who you have on trial is the person who committed the crime, um, and also to show, give the jury an idea of exactly what's happened. So if you can say this bone splintered this way, which suggests this amount of force with this kind of object, then you can paint a clearer picture of the cruelty uh, and get at the truth of, of what actually happened. And that can happen whether it's broken bones or burns or other ways in which people abuse animals. But, but having um, forensic scientists who can testify about the, the type of injury um, and what could cause that really helps prosecute these cases. Um, and DNA, too, is important because it can show, um, it can link the weapon to the particular animal. Um, there was a, a case few years ago of a cat who was beaten with an umbrella um, and they were able to get DNA of the cat off of the umbrella to link the owner of the umbrella to uh, to the crime. And, about and that's happening more and more. How would the ALDF determine the amount of time this person should either spend behind bars or pay in fines or something? That's set by um, whatever the law is. Most animal cruelty statutes have provisions that, that say whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony and what the punishment can be. So that's really determined by state law um, in the case of, of cruelty laws or for federal violations by, by federal statute, and it's up to the judge to sentence within whatever the boundaries are that are established by the statute. Matthew, is forensic veterinarian science a growing field? It is, and I think it reflects the fact that prosecutors and district attorneys are taking animal cruelty cases more seriously. Um, just a few years ago, you, would, you wouldn't have found folks who were willing to spend that amount of money and to run that many tests for an animal cruelty case because they didn't see them as, as that important. And that's still the case in a lot of places, but we're seeing more and more district attorneys recognizing not only that animal cruelty cases are um, important in and of themselves because of the animal victims, but also that they are important because of the fact that many people who abuse animals also abuse humans as well. And so having a, a strict prosecution policy against animal cruelty redounds to the benefits of humans as well. Matthew, can you discuss the ADLS working on having more animal-free options in school lunches. Can you explain what's going on with the case or what ADLF's goal is? Sure, yeah. This is um, not a lawsuit but administrative comments. Um, a, a lot of the laws that affect animals are done at the regulatory level by agencies like the United States Department of Agriculture or the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and so whenever these agencies create new regulations, they give the public and groups like ours the opportunity to submit uh, public comments 
and sort of say, you know, this is a good idea or a bad idea and explain why. And last year, the Department of Agriculture created new regulations on the National School Lunch Program, which is significant. There were more than 30 million students who participated in the program in 2010, so it, it certainly reaches a lot of students. Um, and the new rules proposed um, requiring schools to feature more fruits and vegetables in the school lunch meals, um, less saturated in trans fats, less sodium, and less calories. Uh, so we were generally supportive of the idea of having more fruits and vegetables in schools. I certainly remember my school lunches growing up were, were far from healthy. It was usually pizza or hot dogs or, or something like that. And so those um, high-fat, high-animal product meals are, are directly related to the obesity epidemic, um, juvenile diabetes, things like that that are can often be linked to um, high consumption of, of animal products. And so we were encouraging the USDA to make it easier for students who want to choose um, vegetarian and vegan options to, to do so. Um, and currently the system is set up in a way that, that really um, favors subsidized animal products and cheap agricultural commodities like corn um, at the expense of other more uh, healthy fruits and vegetables. And so we were encouraging USDA um, not only to, to encourage schools to require more fruits and vegetables, but also to provide other um, alternatives to, to meat and dairy products in the schools as well. And that helps not only students who eat healthfully, but also um, also animals to, by decreasing the amount of animals who are killed for the school lunch program. So then why is there resistance to offering more vegan and, and vegetarian options in school meals? Well, it, I think the industries that have an interest in making sure that they have a, a dumping ground for their surplus products want to keep the school lunch program as it is. And the Department of Agriculture has um, has been on the side of industrial corporate farming. And so they tend to buy up surplus commodities and dump them into the school lunch program. And that serves the interests of people who produce cheap, uh, cruelly produced food. And so they have an interest in making sure that that doesn't change. So it goes back down to money. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, where do you see the ALDF going in the future? Well, we'll keep doing what, what we've been doing, uh, which is filing lawsuits that stop animal suffering in the short term, but also that try to lay the groundwork for um, a legal system that takes seriously the interests of animals that um, considers them um, for the, the for who they are and not just uh, the, the interest, the property interest that human beings have in exploiting them. So, um, you know, I think that the trajectory is more and more towards considering animals, providing them more protections, and our hope is that um, we can continue to push that forward through litigation, through uh, raising the field of animal law in the law schools, and hopefully um, encouraging prosecution of, of people who refuse to recognize the interests of animals. And Matthew, how have seeing some of these cases from your standpoint, how have they shaped the way you feel personally about animals or companions? So the cases that I've been involved with um, can be heartbreaking. There's there's no question about that. Um, Example? Important. Well, so there are cases that I've done uh, concerning 
hoarding, animal hoarding, so people who compulsively collect animals and then have a break with reality in terms of how those animals are faring um, and often see the animals as, as healthy and happy when, in fact, they're incredibly neglected and starved. So one of the first cases I did at ALDF was, was a hoarding case. And, you know, seeing those animals and seeing the, the pictures of, of their injuries was really heartbreaking. But at the same time, having won that case and gotten those animals out of there and into adoptive homes uh, and receiving letters and pictures from the people who adopted them and seeing the, the conditions that the animals are in now and how much better they're doing really gives me the energy and the fire to, to keep doing what I'm doing and, and to hope that, that I can continue to, to make a difference for those animals. So, Matthew, how would people get more information about your organization? Well, we have a, a website at www.aldf.org um, that has a lot of information on what we do as an organization. Uh, you can sign up for email alerts on issues that, that members of the public can take action on. Um, so I'd encourage the listeners to do that. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robin. My thanks to Matthew Liebman, the staff attorney for the Animal League Defense Fund. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Klein. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.